Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit Michter's.com to find out how their taste-is-everything, cost-be-damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. You're listening to In The Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is the show that brings you the most interesting personalities of the beverage world. And also me, your host, Joe Campanelli. Um, I have a very exciting show for you today. Uh, It's exciting for me personally, um, but I guess before we even get too far into it, I have some exciting news to share with you guys. Uh, I am going to be opening up a new restaurant um, after... Approximately a one-year hiatus, uh, I was able to find an amazing restaurant space in uh, in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and uh, it's a mix of of sadness and real excitement because I was a big fan of this restaurant. Uh, uh, Chef Aaron Shambour and I will be taking over Franny's on uh, Flatbush Avenue, three forty-eight Flatbush Avenue. Uh, right by Grand Army Plaza. It will it will be a new restaurant, not called Franny's, uh, but it will be a big wine destination uh, where you'll be able to drink great wine served at the proper temperature uh, by knowledgeable and friendly staff in, in really nice glassware. That, that shouldn't be too hard. Uh, I think we can do that. And really excellent food. Erin was the chef at Lartuzzi for six years uh, while she was there. Uh, the Zagat said it was the number two Italian restaurant in New York. So I, I, I tend to agree with them. It's, she's a great chef. And uh, I'm super excited about it. Um, also, in, and I hope to see you there. Uh, we should open sometime by the end of the year. Uh, also, in, I guess, other wine industry news, uh, a former guest of this show, uh, the great Pascaline Le Peltier, uh, Master Sommelier, has left Rouge Tomat. Um, I, I wish her well. She really had a, a great impact, I think, on uh, the, the wine world here in New York. She's going to be doing harvest in uh, in France in September, and then her plans after that are to be determined. Uh, so I'll be uh, paying attention. Uh, I'm going to try to have her on the show. She just published a new book with Alice Firing uh, called Dirty Wine. Um, and I'm excited to read it and excited to talk to them about it. Okay, so today's show, uh, <laughs> I think now that I got through all of that, today's show, we have someone who is the probably the, the biggest influence in my wine career, someone who got me, uh, you know, I've done a lot of interviews where people ask, what got you interested in wine? Uh, and uh, I will always say, I just by chance took a class at NYU called Beverages, uh, taught by Linda Lowry. Uh, who's the director of the International Wine Center here in New York. And uh, that really 
sent me on a, uh, a lifelong journey to learning more about wine, uh, loving wine, and I am so excited to have Linda in the studio with us today. Thank you so much for being here, Linda. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I think it's wonderful that you uh, that you invited me. I hope I'll be interesting for the for for everyone. But you are the one who had this remarkable career, starting with you know I don't know how much wine you were really interested in when you started that class. I, I think you just kind of came into it by accident, didn't you? It really did. It, yeah. I needed a, a, a I mean, I needed a uh, what is it called an elective class to, yeah, to fill yeah. something in, and that so it could have been anything. It just happened to be wine, and then baboom, that was the beginning of your entire yes. life, really. And I found that I was it was a two credit elective class, and all the other classes were four credits, and, <laughs> and I was spending more time on that than on the stuff that was important for my major. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you have really you've gone on to one thing and another. After you did that, you also came to the International Wine Center to uh, to work for us, if you recall. And I then do. you took all the courses. I took all the courses all yeah. the way up to the diploma, which is the most advanced wine class. I would say it's the most advanced wine class in America. Um, you know, the WSET is this huge wine organization. It's the biggest in the world. It's been around since 1969. Wow. And um, it is in 73 countries today. I mean, when, when you were there, it was much smaller, but it has grown and grown. And today it is in 73 countries around the world. Um, many thousands of people take the course every year. And um, I believe it's the best wine education in the world. But that's, you know, we, you can decide on that. But it is certainly... Uh, something that has grown and grown, and uh, and we think it's really good. I think it's the best. I mean, I've I've done all sorts of other uh, classes as well. The Society of Wine Educators. I did the the first two levels of the Quarter Master Sommeliers. But there's something about the structure of the education at the WCT and what you do that I found really appealing, and it was just a very helpful way for me to, to understand and, and learn about wine. Yeah, I mean, things have changed so much in this country. I mean, when you when I, I started at the International Wine Center in 1985, so I've been around for a while there. But at that time, uh, we, it was before we had the WSET. We were just doing courses for consumers. In fact, we were doing everything we could to try to make, to, to try to exist, because uh, people weren't that interested in wine then, mm. you know. P- consumers wanted to drink one; they want to know a little bit about it. But it wasn't—it wasn't nearly what it is today. And so we, um, oh, we did wine competitions, and we had a, a club where people came, and we had wine speakers, and we had these consumer courses. But with all of that, we barely survived until we were approved by the WSCT, and that took a long time before they were willing to let us do this. And they grew enormously. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, when we start, we started their, uh, those courses in 1995, and um, the courses were in England, they were in Ireland, they were in not maybe a little bit in Germany, and then they came to the United States, and we were the only place. New York was the only place. Now it's in about forty-five different cities in the United States, oh, wow. and in you know, as I said, in seventy-three countries around the world. So it has become huge, and part of it, I think, is because people are really interested today in a way they they never were before. And certainly, you've been way up there in terms of your interest in wine and visiting wineries, going to all of these different countries that produce wine. I mean, it's it's so different than it was in the early days. Well, how has wine education, other than just there being more interest, how's, how's the approach to education changed? Um, certainly from the time I, I 
did the you know the WSCT, which is a decade ago, and and be really interesting to know from the eighties when you were first getting started. Yeah. Well, as I said, in the 80s, it was really just for consumers. Just consumers. Okay. And we were doing our best. I mean, we didn't know that much. You know, we had to learn a lot. And we, we definitely have to learn a lot now because literally every year the WSET spikes up the level of what you have to know in order to pass an exam. And, it, and it's getting to the point where it's really a lot of information. It has become huge. There are, um, you know, I mean, the, the diploma takes... Um, if you were really doing it all the time, you might finish it in two years, but really most people take at least three years to get through it. It's a tremendous amount of stuff that you have to know. But, you know, if you're interested in wine, it's fantastic. People love it. If you're not interested in wine, you would never do it because it's just so much work. And yeah, I don't know if I could pass diploma today. It's so much. <laughs> well, you'd have to work on it. I'd have to work a lot, yeah. I mean, just because every single country has to, you know, you have to know about the wines of... Mm-hmm. So many different countries. In, in the early days, you know, it was, well, it was France and a little bit about Italy. and a, you know, But it was really so, really, we, we were not international at mm-hmm. all. We were just in very limited places, and, and the consumer was in limited places. Now, wow, we are everywhere, really. Wow. Yeah, so not only have the classic regions, the classic places grown and expanded and there are new stories in those classic places but there are also new places that weren't absolutely important absolutely and now you know and if you're if you shop in a place like new york you can find wine from almost everywhere there there are not that many places frankly even if you go to california Mm -hmm. you know you're going to find mostly california wine a lot and then a little bit from from a few european countries but if but you know in a place like new york or um, London, you know, these are places where you can find wine pretty much from anywhere in the world. And that's amazing, I think. Amazing. It yeah. really is. Do you agree that the quality of wine has increased? I think that people tend to say that the quality of wine has increased drastically, even if there's maybe more homogenization. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it used to be that you would have to, we would have to taste wine just to see if we could give it to our students because there was so much wine that had problems in terms of how it was produced. There are a lot of of not very fascinating wines out there today, but at least they're good quality as opposed to uh, the wines that are, that used to be part of, part of what we, what we got in. Uh, there's still problems, of course, with you know wines that are that are in, that are not uh, correct. You know that have had problems with them in, in terms of their um, production. Uh, it's a lot less than yeah. it used to be. You know, it used to. I would say that it was at least ten percent of wines were had, had a problem. Today, it's yeah, I don't know, five percent, maybe less. But the fact that it exists at all is amazing when you consider, you know, if that was true of milk, they would be, oh, you know, they, they would be, uh, I don't know, they'd be taking it to Congress. People, you know, they'd be, yeah. they'd be in jail. But with wine, there's an awful lot of wine out there that is not acceptable that you well, have maybe to take that. because not acceptable wine can't get you sick the way that milk could potentially yeah or, i suppose but you wouldn't want to drink it no i mean <laughs> though some people do and uh, yeah that's an interesting point too yes i think that was one of the more useful things i remember um uh, there was an exam that we took i think we had to identify wine flaws i forget what what that was maybe not that was, a, not wsct maybe it was through cw yeah or or, or the uh, the cited wine educators does an exam like that where but they I think have I took flaws. that at ws i think i took that at yeah at, you could have you could have um, yeah and so it's it's helpful to know 
and be able to recognize what they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the people who don't recognize it think, oh, this isn't good. I'm not going to drink this producer anymore mm -hmm. because they think that the producer is making this corked wine. But in fact, the producer didn't know that that wine was corked. It's, it's really, you know, I don't I can't think of any other product that has that kind of problem where there's, you know, in a bag of a thousand corks. There's maybe one that has had this problem, that got this problem by sitting on the ground, and then it was affected by the, by by cork, and um, so uh, they don't know that they that that's what's happened to them, and they uh, they sell it, and then the consumer says, "Oh, this is a bad producer," I'm, you know, but it's 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 not really their fault. Yeah. What about what about um, some faults like Brett or VA? which can be some things that you see more with like natural wines or wines that are, you know, not, don't see as much sulfur or aren't filtered as much, or maybe the cellar is a little dingier. Um, and some people have maybe some higher talent or, or they'll, they'll taste wine with a lot of Brett and VA and be like, ah, oh, that's a natural wine. So I, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. How do, how do you kind of think about that? Well, talk to first of all, that? I would say that that's a very, very small percentage of wine in general. And most consumers who are shopping in stores are not going to find those wines anyway. And the people who are going to find them are pretty um, creative and, and interested. And, and so they will accept that and maybe even drink some of those wines and think, oh, this isn't so bad. But for the, for the average consumer, that it doesn't really exist anymore. There, aren't that, there isn't that much of it's it, rare. which is a good thing, I think. I think so, too. Uh, <laughs> so I think you are a great educator. And when I speak <laughs> with uh, other people, I know a lot of people who... Uh, have been you've taken your classes and you, I'm sure you you hear from lots of students that you're influential. But what do you think makes a good wine educator? How do you how do you think about wine education and what, what makes it an effective educator? Yeah, boy, that's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. One thing I know for sure that I try to tell anybody who comes to teach for us is that it's not about me. It's not about the teacher. It is completely about the people in the room and the students. And there occasionally will be someone who thinks that they're going to say they're going to talk about their opinion and they're going to talk about themselves. And that is a huge mistake. What you have to be interested in is everybody in the room and making sure that they're understanding what you're saying and that they're enthusiastic. Of course, people wouldn't come to these classes unless they were interested. I, I don't have too many people who come who aren't really interested in wine, which is great. Um, but you have to, you know, it's, as I said, the, the level of our courses now has gotten so high that we really have to have people who are willing to go through that. And I mean, spending hours every week on what they've, you know, I mean, for example, at level three, we have 15 weeks of classes. They've got to spend at least, I would say, three hours a week, plus the two and a half hours of the class every single week. And if they if they fall back, then they're really in trouble because by the time they get to the exam, they have to know a huge amount of information. So to me, that's mm -hmm. that's my job is to try to get them to know what they have to do and be willing to do it. And that's not always easy. Well, I found that level three to be the most fun and, and, Did and you? great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that beverages is probably similar to intermediate or level two. Right. And yeah. I took that. And then diploma being that two, I think it took me two and a half years or so, a, a long process. And the, the level of detail and the amount of work that went into it at times was uh, frustrating because yeah. you really have to know so, so much. Yeah. Uh, but three was like the, a good challenge. You yeah. know, it was just I, I, 
I mean, I think that they're all worth doing if you have a love of wine or especially if you have a career in wine. But for some reason, I, I love that, that advanced class. Yeah, I think about yeah, it fondly. Yeah. It sounds like it's a little more challenging today than it was. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. Every year it goes up. But see, that's because you were a really good student. And I'm, I'm not just saying that to compliment. I mean, you were a really good student. You worked really hard. And you were successful. And, and those are the people that, that we really, really appreciate. And not everybody... Not frankly, some people start and they don't finish because it's just mm. too hard for them. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of the things that uh, I noticed and I, I still remember is that you have a. Uh, I don't know if this is a conscious thing. I, I imagine it is because of how 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 direct you are with it, but. You had, it seemed to me like a zero tolerance policy for any sort of snobbery. Yeah. That if you see someone even going in the direction of snobbery, you can so quickly shoot it down. <laughs> and I love which, that. Which <laughs> may insult them terribly and they'll take the class. But no, you're right. I try to avoid that. I just don't think that that's what wine is about. And I think that there are, unfortunately, people in the wine world who are snobs. And, and, so I know this. I know you would never permit this in your restaurants, but there are definitely people who work in restaurants who don't want the consumer to know what they're doing. They just want to be the person who tells the consumer what they should mm-hmm. like and how they should like it. And I, I don't know why wine is like that, frankly. Um, but it is for some people. That's interesting. For some, yeah, people. I've learned quite a bit from my customers. Uh-huh. Uh, I've you know some amazing customers who. Um, who are who are the top of their profession? Yeah. Maybe they're a partner at a law firm, but then they happen to have a passion about wine or a very yeah. specific amount of wine, and they'll know a lot more about Champagne or Northern Rhone or or Mosel Riesling and yeah. something like that than I do because they've spent their lives just passionately Isn't that researching great? it, and I love that. Yeah. Isn't that great? I mean, you know, I, I think about that because a third of Americans drink no alcohol whatsoever, and Today, actually, America is the number one consumer of wine in the world. We are we have now gone beyond France. France was number it was always in total either, volume, not in total in yeah. total volume. Yeah. Yeah, 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 so it was always France, sometimes Italy, but mostly it was France who was the biggest wine consumer in the world, and we were maybe number four. Um, but today we've actually gone up and up, and now we are the number one cons- wine consumers of the world, which sounds great, except America that, number one. Except yeah. that when you think about the population of France, it's about sixty million people. What's the population of America? It's about three hundred twenty plus million oh, people. Yeah. So the fact that we've just gone beyond France doesn't really mean that much. We're still very limited in our wine consuming. It's just that we've gotten a little bit better. <laughs> Yeah, I I think that if some of those, some of the people who are who are not drinkers uh, or are drinking not great wine were to drink really wonderful imported wines, maybe they'd have some more tolerance of internationalism. Oh, that's an interesting point. I never thought of that. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I could be. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, conjecture. This, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's definitely the cities. You know, it's New York and San Francisco and Chicago. So the, these are the places where people are. Number one, they can afford yeah. it. I mean, if you can't afford it, you're going to be drinking either no wine at all or very inexpensive wines. And number two, they've had a chance to explore. They've had a chance to eat in good restaurants. They've had good food. So all of these things, I think, encourage people. But there's still so many people out there who are eating, you know, very simple food and drinking beer, and that's it. And they're not interested in wine. And I think that's a sad thing. I think that is as well. And this is part of our goal here is to encourage. I mean, I think anyone who listens to this show actually 
is already a, of course, a wine drinker. Of course, <laughs> of course. You would not be listening <laughs> you'd be, to the show. You'd be if bored you out of your Yeah, yeah. No, your... you wouldn't be interested at all. But for those of you who uh, uh, are, are wine drinkers and want to learn more, I'm, I really do encourage you to uh, to take classes at the at the International Wine Center with uh, with Linda and her crew there. Um, on that note, I just want to take a quick break, and we'll be back more with Linda Lowry of the International Wine Center, the director, right after this. Victor's Whiskey is a proud sponsor of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. If you drink the whiskey that warmed General Washington's troops at Valley Forge, does that make you a patriot? Not necessarily, but it indicates that you appreciate that Michter sets the standard for highest quality, limited production whiskeys. America's first whiskey distilling company, Michter's rich history dates back to 1753, when a farmer in Schaeferstown, Pennsylvania, distilled his first batch of whiskey from Hardy Rye. At one point, a master distiller left his family's well-known distillery to join Michter's so he could be at a smaller, less cost-conscious company where he could make the finest whiskey, cost be damned. Ask your bartender or retailer for Michter's whiskey today. Chatham Imports is the national sales agent for Michter's Distiller. For more information, please visit www.michters.com. That's www.m-i-c-h-t-e-r-s.com. All right, and we're back with Linda Lowry, the director of the International Wine Center. That is the wine school where I did the majority of my wine education, and I encourage all of you guys to do the same. It is just a great place to uh, learn about wine. Oh, and by the way, I met a bunch of friends uh, who I have uh, now uh, hopefully lifetime friendships with, uh, including Raj Vaida, who recently took over the uh, Danielle Ballou restaurant group's wine director job. So you can meet like amazing people in these classes as well, um, which is just another, just another benefit uh, of, of taking the, the courses. I imagine you've had all sorts of incredible people as, as your students over the years. Um, and okay, so something that I wanted to talk about, I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit, uh, is the idea of using descriptors, uh, specific flavor descriptors to to talk about wine. I think this is something that uh, has come up. Uh, Eric Asimov has written about it in, in his book about how he is not as much a fan of using very, very specific flavor descriptors. Um, I, I wonder if, uh, if that's something that, uh, what, what do you think about that? And how, how do you think about, you know, and then I would specific flavor descriptors, like the type of fruit to the color of the fruit, the type of the soil or the mineral and all, all of these things. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. We, um, we have very specific, um, aromas, uh, descriptions of aromas and flavors and colors and all that. We have, they're very specific for our courses because when the student takes the exam, there's a proctor who has tasted those wines and then there's a student who has tasted those wines. And if everything is different, which it easily could be since there's about a million ways that you can describe aromas and flavors, then it's going to be hard for the student to pass. What I always tell them is stick to the limited aromas and flavors that Mm -hmm. we're giving you until you take your test and then you can do whatever you want 
And obviously, people, the most important thing for people to, to do is say something that is something they understand, not something that somebody else will understand. Because again, describing aromas, flavors, color is, is a extremely complicated. And what you might consider lime, I might consider lemon. So are we wrong? No. It's just that we have different ways of thinking about it. But if I say lemon, and I know this is lemon, and then I know it t- tastes again, and there's lemon, and so on, that's important for me. Mm-hmm. And and again, whatever people do for themselves after they pass their exam is what I think they should do. Okay. And do you think that there's a place for obscure flavor descriptors? Some people certainly think so. I mean, the and maybe the more obscure you are, the more advanced you are. Maybe that's really creative, but not everybody is going to go there. And I don't think they have to. I think you I think everybody has to do what makes sense for them, what they understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, because again, you know, it's it's really hard for us to to talk about what we're experiencing and get that it's the same thing. We, how do I know what you experience when you right. when you're tasting something? I don't. Oh, I, the best I can do is try to understand myself, and everybody has to do that. I think. So, do you think though that uh, other than for the purposes of passing the exam, there's there's benefit in talking about? Uh, the flavor descriptors in a and sort of that that lens. Oh, absolutely, because yeah. it expands. It expands as you go on, and and that's literally how it works with our classes. As the class becomes more advanced, all of these things are expanding, and people are thinking about more things. Mm-hmm. And they're and they're you know I mean I, I truly think that the, the the simpler you are as you begin, the fewer things. Are, are possible for you in terms of what you see. And as you as you keep tasting and thinking and thinking, it goes on and on and on, and you get many, many more things. And of course, that's much more interesting in terms of what you taste yeah. and how you enjoy things. So there's a big advantage to doing that. Yeah, and I, and I like to think of the, when we're talking about fruit, because most wines have, have fruit flavors, the, the state in which the fruit is in is, is pretty descriptive and, and helpful. Like saying something like the, this wine tastes of cherries is, is not so descriptive. But <laughs> if you said it tastes like a, a tart wild cherry or black cherry jam, those are both still cherries, but those are very different experiences. Right, right. But you've got to explore what that tastes like before you can describe it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think sometimes people use descriptors that they've never heard of. Or, I'm sorry, that they've never they've heard of, but they've never experienced. But because other people have said it, then you put it on there. And that I always tell people that I don't think that's such a good idea. I think you have to go to the supermarket and smell the raspberries and smell the strawberries and really get what that smells like. And then you can go beyond that and say, well, this is, you know, this is a particularly uh, you know, a particular type of strawberry. You know, mm. just, just, things get more complex as you know what they taste like. But you can't make it up. You have to have really, I believe, you have to have really smelled it and and registered it. And that's there's a lot to that. There's a, there's an awful lot that you have to understand about. Yeah. That. Is there a way that a, a more systematic way that you can go about learning those those flavors? Have you like? gotten herbs and putting them in bunches of cups and done blind tastings like trying to smell and understand the herbs like how can someone best understand those those yeah that's that's we we have not done that i tell people to do that on their own Mm -hmm. but you know people do encounter all these things all the time the one thing i don't tell people to do is that there is a there's a, a a sample have you ever seen this little sample thing that you can buy i think it costs about four hundred dollars Le, in the Le store Le Nade Van, Le Nade Van. Oh, my French is terrible I, I, the 
nose of wine. Thing. Yes, yeah. exactly. And you know, the, I really don't think that's a good way to go about it because those things, first of all, they they dry out and they're, they're not mm. accurate anymore. But even if they are, you know, the, I think you're much better off with real things mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to literally go out into the garden and smell things. And um, and if it's not here, you know, if we don't have it in this country, don't do that. If you haven't smelled it. Don't I talk would say, about it, yeah. well, I mean, because you're not sure what it smells like. And it, aromas are so complex, and there's, there's thousands of them. So I think you really have to learn them one at a time and try to remember them. On the flip side, how do you, um, how do you teach people to not have the bias when they taste when they are tasting a wine blind or they're smelling a wine to, and they might automatically think that it's something just by some and I, and I think of like an oaked white wine right and people also often if they smell an oaky white wine or a white wine that has some oak to it uh will say oh that is chardonnay yeah i, I imagine that's something that's probably hard to break of people very hard very hard because um you know if you're if you're really overwhelmed with oak how can you know what else is there i guess you right? can't taste what it is anyway it's not it's not the taster's fault yeah no yeah. no i mean and, and and it's very very difficult, and I don't expect people to get it all. I think it takes years. I think everybody has to just keep going at it and at it. And you can um, believe me, I've seen this with people who are wine makers. They're brilliant, and uh, you know we've had we've had all kinds of uh, wine people at the wine center. Mm-hmm. And I remember we did a wine tasting one time with a bunch of really famous people who I won't mention, and we did a blind tasting and. They got it wrong, you know. I mean, they, so it, you, you can be doing this for your entire life and still get it wrong. You you can't always get it right. In fact, I don't know if people really appreciate how difficult these things are to to get right. Some people are just geniuses, you know. They just have a they have a a sense of what things smell like, and and I think that's literally something you're born with. That some people are really better at it than others. We can all get better. I mean, we can all keep practicing and practicing. Um, but in the end, it's about enjoying it, isn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, it's about liking what you drink and having it with making it work with food, and and of course, that's a whole other issue: is what works with what. You know, I mean, I'd rather have I'd rather have um, Zinfandel with with an omelet if I if I couldn't have anything else. But if you really work out the way things are uh, appropriate and make both things taste better, that is, the food makes the wine taste better and the wine makes the food taste better. Um, Wow, that's really great. And that's probably the most important thing you can do, I think, and, and encourage other people to do and it, too. Have you done an additional focus on food and wine pairing? Or or service is also something that was not uh, not big for WSETO? No, we really don't talk about service because it's about um, wine understanding of wine. Mm-hmm. So we're not really there to teach people in the restaurant world how to serve that's a that's a whole other there are other uh, organizations that do that but no we're really about wine um consuming and even even wine and food is something that we don't have a lot of time for in our more elevated classes at level one we do talk about it in fact we serve uh simple flavors we serve you know salt for example and uh um lemon and and so on just to get an idea not that you would ever be eating uh, salt with wine, but just to get an idea of how that changes it and how. So we we work on that to some extent, but when you get really out there into wine and food, so far at least the, the International Wine Center has, or the, the WCT, I should say, hasn't uh, gotten into that because that's a huge topic, and we'd have to we'd really have to have a whole new class there to do be. that. 
What about producers? Uh, it's producer. How do you think about producers when you're teaching about uh, a region? Uh, do you, I, I don't remember there being uh, so much like these are like the benchmark producers that you should know. Not at all. No. Not at all. We're, we're again, neutral. Let, let, we're very neutral. Yes, yeah. we really I, I don't think there are more than one or two producers talked about in the whole book. And maybe those are some of the most famous producers on the planet. But no, we, we don't really talk about that because, again, that's a huge topic that would that would have to be mm-hmm. an entirely new um, course that we have to be giving. And we're all we already feel like we're. You know, we got a lot to do as it is. We, we we have a tremendous amount of information that the students are needing to know. So we we really uh, we really don't go there. Um, but I certainly encourage everybody who is in our courses to uh, not only read about wine and taste wine, but to go to the places where wine is made. And I know you've done that, and it really. I mean, you didn't you live in Europe for a while? I, I, a few times. I, I studied in uh, mostly while studying abroad. I studied abroad in Madrid, and then twice in Florence. And, yeah. Uh, I had gone to Florence after taking your class for the first time and took a wine class with Ian Dagata there, uh, who was just on the show. And if you haven't listened to that episode, it, he's he's just brilliant and great. Uh, and he wrote a great book on uh, the indigenous wine grapes of Italy. Uh, wow. Seen that. Which is a huge topic, which most people topic. have never even heard of. Right? Huge topic. Yeah. And it's endlessly fascinating for me. Uh, and then Florence was, uh, you know, it, in the middle of, or the northern part of the Chianti region. So One of the uh, greatest places in the world for wine, I think. Fantastic. And, you know, we would uh, rent a car and, and drive and be able to be in vineyard. And so, as someone who, like, grew up in Queens uh, and had never met a farmer before, uh, that was really cool for me. Yeah. Fascinating. to yeah. see yeah. person who... Was was growing the food, growing the wine, but also that it had some cultural and historical significance to them. Yeah, uh, it, I don't know. I, the, though that kind of like one two punch, and then the three with my my first job at uh, in, at uh, Italian wine merchants, I was like, that was it. I, yeah. I knew that I, I needed to know everything. And, and you're and, a great Italian wine expert. I mean, that is really something that you know as much about anybody, as anybody I know. You are really, oh, re- you. you're really well informed about that. Thank but you. I, I always encourage, I mean, I, I don't know how much time I spend on this, and maybe students don't, uh, students don't have to do this, but if they can visit wine regions, that is such a big step up. Mm-hmm. I, I have been to, I would say, maybe there's one or two missing, but I think I've been to every single region that I teach. And wow, wow. you know, I mean, if that, that is um, something that really, really changes what you think about everything. And you can, you can imagine it, but when you see it, when you see what the, the land looks like and what the climate looks like and what the people are like, and what, you know, it just is such a huge, uh, important thing to do. Yes, and you kind of just hit on something that I that I say frequently that most wineries look very similar. So make sure that when you go to a wine region that you are not just going to a tasting room. Because <laughs> you could taste those wines in New York and it'll they'll probably taste better in their tasting room because you're on vacation or whatever, but <laughs> every wine or every vineyard is different. But absolutely, many many cellars are very similar. I mean, you, there's once in a while you see a really extraordinary 
seller that's that's beautiful and, and unique, but a lot of them are, are pretty similar. It's yeah, still cool. Sure. It's yeah. very I like seeing them. Yeah, but. They've got barrels. They've got winemakers. They've got the press. You know, I mean, of course, that's they all have a, in general the same process. Yeah. But boy, there's you're right. It's so different in, from one place to another, from yeah. one country to another, one town to another. Yes, and the and the vineyards are so fascinating. I mean, there are places where the vineyards go practically straight up. You know, and you wonder yeah. how on earth are they growing grapes there and harvesting mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, other places where everything is flat, and you think, well, that probably isn't so great. But it is great because in places like Bordeaux or in California, um, those because of other issues with climate and soil and so on, um, those are great. So there's there's so many things that affect the way wines are uh, grown and the way they're made and the way they taste. It's It just is an endlessly fascinating topic, I think. I, I agree. Um, uh, I know that you're also involved with the uh, Les Dames d'Escoffier. That's uh, true. After this show is uh, uh, another show, a new show on Heritage Radio that I really love um, called Speaking Broadly with Dana Cowan. And she highlights all of these just brilliant women in the food industry. Uh, and she is one of them uh, herself. Um, can you tell us about Les Dames d'Escoffier and your work there? Sure, right. sure. I, I was the president of Les Dames d'Escoffier in New York for uh, two years now. I'm the ex-president. Um, it's it's an organization. It's a small organization. It started in the seventies, and um, it's women who are um, uh, have been around in the wine or food world for some time. So, for example, in New York, we only have one hundred and sixty five members, and we only bring in about somewhere between five and ten new members every year because you have to have been in the business for at least ten years, and you have to have been to some degree successful. So that's a particular kind of thing that that organization is. Um, and we um, mostly, we're, um, the, the main goal is to develop scholarships for uh, students, both at the Wine Center and other colleges around the world, and then to do events for our members. And we do a lot of interesting events. There's a uh, there's a, also an international uh, La Dame de Scaffier with all the <clears throat> members around the around the country, and um, every year we all get together and have uh, a, a conference somewhere mm-hmm. in the uh, in the country, and uh, it's it's pretty fascinating. I mean, uh, it's great people. You get to meet all these people and spend time with them. And uh, is there a scholarship as well? If I remember, Dumbledore's yeah, the scholarship is yeah. something that we do every we do year every for. Year. For uh, for different colleges mm-hmm. and it's uh, great. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's probably our most important thing is yeah. that we develop, uh, we get in money from donors and our own uh, treasury and so on uh, to bring uh, women in the college age, uh, you know, to to give them scholarships. So we we, we like that. Can I ask ask you something a, a, a sidestep for that? How do you feel about the term uh, a female winemaker? Is Ugh. that is that a, a demeaning term in some yes. way, like a female judge? You yes, know, like yes, you shouldn't yes. have to. The, the thing, it's so, it's so it, this is so interesting um, because there are fewer of them. It seems to be necessary to indicate that this is a female. But really, if we get a little bit beyond this, it'll be a winemaker. You know, it's like it's like a comedian. Remember when we used to call comedians yeah. co- women comedians yeah. comedians? Oh, you don't hear that because, at all. No, yeah, because yeah. fortunately now there are women who are funny. And there, okay. are all, there were always women who were funny, but we had to, you know, identify. So I think as time goes on, we're not going to have to identify a person as a man or a woman. It's just a person who does this. And some of them are men and some of them are women. And 
Um, to me, it, it is demeaning to so say. So we can female. all agree to drop that. I hope so. We will all. Everyone who like listens to, to the show, yeah, please, you're going to agree to drop yeah, the really, female winemaker. Uh, not only winemaker, but female anything. <laughs> anything. Yeah. Really, I mean, it's because again, it was always because there were no women at one time, right? And then there were two, you know, and then we got to ten, and so. But now it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> I thought about it. There was a there was a little kerfuffle about it a, a little while ago. Some people were and, and brought it up, uh, but and I think you're seeing a couple of wine lists that focus on on wines made by by female winemakers as well. Really? Um, Where is yeah. that? Well, Anita Lowe was big on it when uh, a, a few years ago. I know that uh, Dirt Candy, uh, very cool <sighs> restaurant down Lower East Side, they focus on female winemakers. There's there's always there's always been a big. Uh, the past few years, there's been a big discussion in, in Barolo about how the daughters or granddaughters are taking over. Um, Which is fine. But when you say we have a restaurant and we're, we have female winemakers, to me, that's kind of odd, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm, it, it don't, what is it implying that we want you to know that women make wine? Well, we know that women make wine. I don't know. I wouldn't. I don't think I would go there. Well, maybe it's in a way like supporting the women. Yeah. In, like it's but it's because they, they think they need support. Whereas mm. I'm saying as as time goes on and we, everybody's more successful, I don't think we should do that. Uh, I, I Just an opinion. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, Linda, is there anything that our listeners should know if they want to take a class with you? Um, how, how can they how can they find information? Uh, is it still www? No, I don't have to say www. It's just internationalwinecenter.com. Is it's so kind of you to ask. Yeah, I mean, it's the International Wine Center. Look it up. Uh, see what you think. Read about it. Call us. We're happy to tell you. And if you think that's uh, something that works for you, we're there. But uh, uh, so, so nice of you to ask that question. It, it's just something that's so worthwhile to do uh, for someone who um, who has an interest in wine. And if you think that you're a smarty pants and know a lot about <laughs> it, by the way, uh, make sure you, you don't. Uh, I don't know if you even allow this anymore, but uh, I've had, there were a lot of people who worked for me who actually ended up taking classes with you and uh, even gone all the way through to, to diploma. But it, it's always, I find it's always useful to start at that level two. Can you start at level two? Absolutely. Yeah. Don't, Actually, don't right now, to... these days, we, we also are now licensed by the New York I was gonna Education ask you about that. Department, yes. which has made our lives a little more complicated, if it mm. wasn't complicated enough. So, yes, yeah, so they require that people start at level two. Um, the, the other option is that there's an exam that people can take, and if they can pass that exam, then they can skip level two. But we definitely... Um, encourage people to start at level two because, for example, I, I should say I think most of the people who who come to us are in the wine business one way or another. But we also have a lot of consumers. But um, if you're if you are in the wine business, um, the chances are you have a certain number of wines that you know very well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if for example if you're in a restaurant that specializes in Italian wine, well you know all those wines. But the, what we do uh, is try to cover the entire world of wine. So if you are, if you think you know a lot about wine, you know all about Italian wine. Then when you get to the course and suddenly you're talking about German wine and Australian wine and all this stuff, you're not going to be, uh, you're not going to, you're going to have an awful lot of stuff to catch up on. So, so um, I think it is important to start at level two. In fact, we have a level one which is simple. Consumers take it. 
Um, it's only a three-course session, but I actually think that it's a good idea for people to even do that one. Mm -hmm. You don't have mm -hmm. to, but there are things in that course that we don't cover at all as we go beyond it. So depending on where you are um, in, with your knowledge, um, I, I think and, level and that's one foundations, is great. right? Yeah, that's, foundations. So that gives you this foundational. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you if you don't have, it, say you're an enthusiast, maybe you've never taken a class before, or you don't exactly. work in the industry. That's super. I think super so. helpful. I think it helps a lot. It's 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 short, and uh, it's not that difficult. But again, it gives you a perspective that you wouldn't have had um, without it. So. Why was it important to be accredited? I, I know that was a big, that had been a, a big push for a while, and to be with, in an accredited wine school with well, New York. Well, yeah. we, we were told that we had to be, frankly. Okay. Um, if you are in a, a school that has um, some kind of professional um, reason to exist, you are supposed to be accredited by the New York State hmm. uh, Department of Education. And we weren't because we, well, we said, well, people just do it for fun, right? Mm, no. So it took us two years to get uh, approved by New York State. And all of our teachers had to go to this course. I had to go to um, Albany for a director's course. Um, everything has to be approved. It takes a long time. I sound like I'm complaining. Well, Sorry, but it is. There's an awful lot to it. We had no idea we were getting into something so confusing, but we really didn't have an option. But that shows also the dedication. I mean, you can take a one-off class here or there, and, and you, you were already doing fantastic work before this. But it shows the kind of dedication you have to to education and it being a professional school where people are serious and they can really learn and further their careers or their, their passion about it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that. But, um, again, as I said, we, we really didn't have a choice. They, they said either do this or okay. we're going to get you out of business. So we had to do it. And it's, it's been, um, I, you know, I'm not complaining, but I am going to say that it is a huge amount of stuff that we have to do every year to be part of that. Uh. <laughs> Sometimes Albany makes you know makes things more challenging. Especially they do in the restaurant they industry. Really, oh yeah, I'll as bet. Well. I'll bet. I'll bet. Wow. So I can I can because uh, you're licensed too, right? It's mostly with the the new legislation. Uh, I want to get there's just new legislation coming out of Albany in the past the past couple of years when it comes to um, uh, restaurant employees that maybe makes sense for a diner outside of Albany but doesn't necessarily make sense in New York for instance there we had to start doing um, breaks and the uh. to be technical technically correct you to do it like four hours in in the middle of a shift oh my gosh that's seven eight o'clock. Oh my gosh! It doesn't make any sense, right? So, is somebody checking to make sure you're doing it, or how no, do you? No, not necessarily. <laughs> anyway, before I get myself in too much trouble, uh, I can't <laughs> imagine restaurants saying, "Oh, it's eight o'clock. You have to take a break." To the, I mean, that's crazy. I, yeah, that's just the start of it. <laughs> well, we'll, 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 I'll tell you the rest of it over lunch. <laughs> Uh, thank you. I just want to thank uh, David Tadichor, who uh, produced the show. You're the best. And uh, thanks so much to Heritage Radio Network and to our sponsor, Michter's. Um, please, everyone, go uh, do nice things to Michter's, like buy a bottle, maybe. Um, and especially you, the listeners. You're the most important thing. Uh, I really appreciate you listening to this show. And uh, if you can, subscribe or leave us a rating on iTunes. We'd certainly appreciate that. Uh, I guess if it's a good rating. If it's a bad rating, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> uh, thanks so much. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.